Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday, February 17th, Andy Johnson taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions. Randy took us through the book of Genesis. Andy leads Catalyst Theology, is the senior pastor at King's Community Church in Southampton, and is a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So you're going to have five minutes. I want you to imagine that you are doing the same thing as a 21st century box set producer does for I know the equivalent of I don't know what your favorite box set is maybe it suits 24 West Wing Good Wife whatever floats your boat think in those terms you have got seven series to put together a box set that will tell the the biblical narrative. What is that going to look like? I don't want each episode. I want the seven series that make up the big picture, Genesis to Revelation. Work work in pairs, and you've got five minutes to do it. Okay. Don't worry if you haven't quite finished. Let's get some feedback. Um, What about... One of the groups on the third table back on this side. Yeah, the people I'm looking at now. Go on. So come on, let's let's hit each each series. How many series did you work out? Three. Go on. Three so far, right? Creation, the twisters at the end, the fall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's Noah, uh, where he floods the earth, and then twists yeah. his rainbow, yeah, and there won't be one again, that one. Uh, then it's uh, number three, Moses, um, Prince of Egypt, I believe it's been done before. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the point. Yeah. The, the trouble with that is that's going to end up about 25 series, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone want to give me broader brushstrokes? Go on. Uh, we've got the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. The chosen people, number two. So he, he yeah. people. Number three, the history of Israel. Yeah. Number four, Jesus arrives. Number five, the early church. Number six, the church now. And number seven, heaven. Yeah, okay. That's one way of doing it. But of course, that, that's very um, backloaded, isn't it? Because it's, it's um, when, when you look at um, the... The, content, the overall biblical narrative, quite a lot of what you've done is packaged towards the, the end of it, isn't it? Um, anybody else want to... I'm not saying anything's right or wrong, it's just getting a different perspective on it. One more. Just thought, I mean, on a sense, straight out the window, but I just thought the first episode could be about a farming family, Terra and Abraham, and Abraham deciding to leave, and having the land motif. Uh, motif go through everything so I thought in terms of Abraham, business with the sacrifice and the land being established and if you move the land motif everywhere, 
there somebody was looking after sheep, like you know, Moses and the children of Israel, David's a shepherd boy, Joseph, you can have the farming people in, um, in Egypt, and then to the shepherd himself, yeah. and then the church. And the ends with the lamb. The, the lamb on the throne. Yeah. I like it. I like it. It's nice, isn't it? To give it a a continuous thread, Genesis right through to Revelation. Yeah, very uh, very interesting. You know, there are other ways of providing continuous thread. Some people have talked about the big narrative as being, you know, from the garden to the city. That's quite an interesting way of doing it, isn't it? So Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem. Uh, or you can do it from uh, a wedding to the wedding, going from Adam and Eve to Jesus and the church. So there's all sorts of ways. This, this is what I came up with, but I'm not saying mine's right, yours wrong, is wrong or anything like that. Um, I came up with um, uh, number one, beginnings. Um, number two, the land. Uh, number three, the monarchy. These would need snappier titles if you're going to do on TV, obviously. Number four, division and defeat. Um, number five, exile and return. Most of you, my guess is, didn't have enough on the, the really tricky historical bits of the Old Testament narrative that we all get a bit hazy about. Who, who's going to be honest enough to, to admit that? Yeah. Um, Number six, the arrival of the king. And number seven, the kingdom goes viral, which is the church. So that's, that's what I ended up with. And when you read through, um, say, the um, series one that we're going to cover today, really what we're doing is 10 out of 20 episodes of series one in a sense that I think series one, if I were uh, putting my framework uh, uh, into it, would be what theologians call the Pentateuch or what Jews call the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What is normally called the books of the law or sometimes also called the books of Moses. And we're doing 10 out of 20 episodes because we're really only covering Genesis and we're starting with the historical narrative and then, if you like, we'll do the prequel, um, Genesis 1, 2 and 3. We're going to start with, I should just say as well, if I say anything that you don't understand or you want to challenge or disagree with or just ask a question, please feel free to shout out. If nobody shouts out, I'll just keep talking. Um, so the word Genesis actually means beginning. So we're looking here at the beginnings of the world and the beginnings of the story of God's dealings with his people Israel. And it's a historical narrative um, that um, when, when you look at uh, books like Exodus and Leviticus particularly, uh, you will be aware from your reading of the Bible you get to the second half of Exodus or you get into Leviticus and bits and numbers. There's lots of law in there 
and that, that can be pretty tough going. And all of that is given to God's people while they're in the desert on that 40-year journey. Well, really, we're looking at in this session from Abraham right through to the death of Joseph. And we're assuming that Moses is the guy who is the main guy behind the text. Even if he didn't write every single word of the books of the Torah or the books of the Pentateuch, uh, I would suggest he can't possibly have written every word in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because in Numbers 12.3, it says that um, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. You don't write that about yourself if you're really humble, do you? Um, also, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy 34 verse 5 tells the story of Moses' death. So again, it's unlikely that Moses was writing as he, uh, uh, as he died. So the final arrangement of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy would have come later. Um, but I think it's reasonable to assume that Moses is the primary author because Jesus assumes Moses' authorship. Um, so if you look at John 5, 46, someone read that out for me. Yeah, um, if you really believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote about me. Jesus there is clearly referring back to Genesis through to Deuteronomy. So I don't think anything I've said uh, so far would be particularly controversial to um, evangelicals. I think liberal scholars would challenge as hell, it can't possibly have been written by Moses. And, uh, but I think we would say, well, actually Moses... Uh, is the, the, the main guy who would have collected together the narrative and then it would have been edited uh, later uh, by other people. Historical narrative, um, as I say, we're going to start with Genesis 12 and uh, you'll see what you've got in diagram form on the first page is a diagram of Genesis 12 to 50. You've got the family tree that tells the story of um, Genesis. So you'll see there Sorry, that... Just, just very briefly, why is it important to assume Moses wrote Genesis? Um, because um, if, you, if you take the liberal view that it was written in the post-exile period, then actually it's not really a historical narrative. And therefore, um, it, it, the post-exile period, it would have been um, written um, maybe 500 BC as opposed to 
uh, having its origins a thousand years earlier around the time of Moses. So actually of what reliability and historical veracity is it if it's written a thousand years after the events? Whereas if, if what I'm saying is true, that actually um, the essential narrative is dated in the Mosaic period and it's merely edited a thousand uh, years later, about 500 BC, I don't think that's challenging its, its authority at all. Does that answer the question? So you've got the basic family tree. Um, Just look for the star. Um, Just follow the star in the chart to see the key characters um, that we are going to plot. So Terah gives birth to Abraham, gives birth to Isaac, gives birth to Jacob, gives birth to Judah. That is the seed in the narrative that we um, are going to be following. And you've got on the right there um, uh, a map of Abraham's journeys. Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, God calls him. He goes to Haran and then eventually ends up, ends up in the land of Canaan. Uh, just an obvious question. Why does he take such a long route rather than just go due west from Ur uh, to Canaan. It's desert, yeah. It's, um, it's the Arabian desert. So uh, um, ancient civilizations are based around rivers. So he's following um, the, um, the Euphrates there from Ur uh, through to, to Haran. Um, the whole story of Genesis starts and finishes with the grace of God and God's choice. And it's really, really important to remember that. When we think about um, these books, we often focus law. Um, So uh, we'll focus the Ten Commandments, we'll focus the detail of the Mosaic law, Long, long before law comes grace and choice. So think about how God chooses Abraham. Terah, who's Abraham's father, is an idol worshipper from modern day Iraq. There was absolutely nothing in Abraham's background that commended him to God. Somebody just read... Joshua 24, 2 and 3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, had made war, and they served other gods. Then I, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many again Isaac. Yeah, brilliant. So there you've got uh, the retelling of the story uh, as uh, right at the end of Joshua's life. Joshua reminds the people of God that God focused a man called Abraham. 
and Abraham's father was a man called Terah, and Terah lived beyond the Euphrates River in pagan country, saying they worshipped other gods. So God, in his grace and in his sovereign will, chooses Abraham, this idol-worshipping background character. Now, Abraham responds with faith and obedience, but God's choice and God's grace predates um, the faith and obedience with which Abraham uh, responds. Just as a, 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 an aside, and this might be controversial to, to some, I don't know, but uh, I was just talking about um, the whole issue of tithing a, a, a home base the other, the other week, and lots of people are always very quick to say, oh, well, tithing's old covenant. And you think, actually, Abraham, as the man of faith, tithes to Melchizedek, the priest king, who's a picture of Jesus, 450 years before Moses gave the law. It's not a law thing, it's a, it's a, a worship to Jesus thing. But that's an aside, we can come back to that. Um, so what we see in Genesis chapters 1 through to 11 is the big picture story of origins, and that uh, we're going to cover in the next session. What the writer is doing from chapter 12 onwards is drilling down into one story and one family that actually is then going to tell the grand narrative of how God deals with the human race. And if you think about it, it's, that's the mechanism, that's the device with which many writers and filmmakers uh, use today to tell big picture narrative. I've just put a couple of examples that came to my mind, but you could think of uh, your own examples. So uh, it's an old film now, but I'm sure many of you have seen Schindler's List, which tells the story of the Holocaust by drilling down on the... Um, dealings of Oscar Schindler in trying to rescue people who are of Jewish um, ethnicity uh, from the gas chambers and it's a very personal story that tells a much bigger historical narrative um, or uh, another good example who's, who's read Ben Elton's Two Brothers do they have books up north <laughs> Sorry, that was rude. That was rude. I'd rebuke myself. But clearly nobody's read it. It's a great book. Ben, uh, it, ben Elton, as in the comedian, tells um, the story in this novel of um, a Jewish mother who gives birth um, to a child and a Gentile mother who gives birth to twins and... The Jewish mother dies and one of the twins dies. So the Gentile mother adopts the Jewish little baby and nobody knows that they're not really twins. And he, he, what he does is he tells the story of the rise of the Third Reich from the perspective of a Jewish mother raising a Gentile and a Jewish um, son. And uh, it's a brilliant telling of uh, the history of the Third Reich. Um, 
Anyway, so the whole idea of telling big picture narrative by drilling down into one family and showing the nature and the character of God and what God is like and how God deals with humanity and God's big purpose um, through uh, drilling down into the life uh, of this man, Abraham. And the first thing I want us to focus on is the whole idea of covenant. Covenant. Legally binding promise. Um, but in this case, it's, it's one-way traffic. Normally, when we think of covenant, whether it's a marriage covenant today or whether it's a covenant in the ancient world, that the whole idea of covenant is both sides are making promises. But covenant here is entirely one-way traffic. This is what God is promising to do. Um, and it's worth just flicking through and seeing how the covenant is originally pledged and then is renewed and re-promised um, as the story unfolds. So God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. First promise. I will bless you and make you famous. Second promise. You will be a blessing to others. Third promise. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. Fourth promise. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Fifth promise. So promise after promise after promise. And it's all God to Abraham. Notice there, all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. And that's a particularly important promise that I want us to um, pick up again when we look at Genesis Chapter 15. Of course you can. The covenants. Yeah. Are they specifically for Israel, for the Jews? And has it been, I mean, they've not all been fulfilled, have they? That's a really, really good question. Now, the reason I focus Genesis 12, all the families on the earth will be blessed through you flip now to uh, Genesis uh, 15 1 to 2 um, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him don't be afraid Abraham um, I'll protect you your reward will be great um, Abraham replies sovereign Lord what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son um, and then go down to verse 4 the Lord says to Abraham no Elizabeth Damascus will not be your heir you will have a son of your own who will be your heir the Lord took Abraham outside and said to, uh, said to him look up in the sky and count the stars you can that's how many descendants you will have Abraham believed the Lord the Lord counted it as righteousness to him so you've got the promise, all the families of the earth will be blessed 
through him. And you've also got the promise that Abraham will have many descendants. Now, just hold those promises in your mind and turn to Galatians 3.16. I would suggest this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. And it answers directly the question that you've just asked. Galatians 3.16. God gave promises to Abraham and his child, i.e. to Isaac. Or maybe it's not to Isaac. Notice the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather it says to his child and that of course means Christ. Probably in your verse it uses the word seed. Who's got a version where it says seed? Yeah, it's probably a better translation. I'm using NLT which is a bit looser. Um, And this is really, really important because the point that Paul is making is the promises to Abraham are all fulfilled in Christ. And he says very specifically, doesn't refer to seeds, it refers to the seed, i.e. Christ. So I think... In a sense, you're right when you say, surely there are promises that are made to the Jews that have yet to be fulfilled. So you look at Romans 11, is it 24, where it says, where Paul is saying, God's made all these promises to ethnic Israel. Now look at ethnic Israel. Largely speaking, they've rejected the Lord's Messiah. Does that mean... God's given up on Israel? By no means, Paul says, and all Israel will be saved. It doesn't literally mean every ethnic Jew. He's, that's a, um, a device for saying there's going to be many, many Jews come to faith in, G, in, G, um, in Jesus before the return of Jesus. So there are some promises. But the whole point that Paul is making is all the promises to Abraham and his descendants are all fulfilled in Christ and it's all through faith in Israel's Messiah and when you the the point going back to the the page before um, and the um, the diagram of the patriarchal family tree the key thing that the reason I put a star against the name of Abraham Isaac Jacob and Judah is I'm tracing the seed. God makes a promise to Abraham and the promise is is not to uh, anyone and everyone who is biologically descended from Abraham um, ethnically. It's the promise to Abraham's seed. And I don't know whether you've ever seen... um, magicians with um, you know the, the, the three cups and you're going to try and work out where, which cup the ball is, is under. And in essence, that's what the writer of Genesis um, 12 to 50 is doing. Let's look at where the ball is. Where's the seed? Where's the seed? 
Is it in Ishmael? No, it's in Isaac. And in a way, that doesn't surprise us that much because Isaac is the legitimate heir. Um, and Ishmael is an attempt to force the issue. But then you get to the story of Jacob and Esau, and surely it's going to be Esau. But no, it's Jacob who carries the seed. Because Israel's Messiah is going to come from, from Jacob, not from Esau. And then you get to the 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, surely it's going to be Reuben because he's the firstborn. Or surely it's going to be Joseph because he's the most loved. Actually, the seed is Judah. Judah bears the seed. And he's the fourth son of the unloved wife, Leah. Remember the story? So it's, it's a fascinating um, family tree to, to follow through. Um, but the key point is it's all about uh, who carries the promise of the seed. Um, Genesis 17 is important because the promise is renewed and the mark of the covenant is identified. The mark of the covenant being circumcision. And so you can yeah, read about that, particularly verses 9 through to 14. Then you come to Genesis chapter 22. And the promise is renewed again. This is shortly after Abraham's act of obedience in looking to, uh, to offer up Isaac. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you've obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son. I will swear by my own name. I will certainly bless you and multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. Notice there the promise to bless all the nations. How? Through Christ. Through the seed that Abraham's carrying. The promise is then renewed to Isaac in Genesis 26. And that's probably the clearest cross-reference that we've got, I think, to uh, what, Ab what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 about uh, the seed and uh, the promise of the seed. And then finally, the promise is renewed to Jacob. So when you look through your Old Testament history, quite often God will describe himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And what that is shorthand for, it's, it's saying... God is a covenant-keeping God. God made a promise to Abraham that he renews to Isaac and then he renews to Jacob. So it's a declaration of the character and nature and heart of God that he's faithful, he keeps his promises, he's true 
to his covenant. Now, one of the things we've got to remember is this is covenant, it's legally binding contract, if you like, but there's a strong supernatural dimension to God's covenant promises. Quite often, um, people um, who have a high view of the promises of God in Scripture will have a very low view and low expectation of the supernatural. So in my experience, I grew up in a, uh, a church when I was a teenager that uh, loved the Bible, that preached Jesus, that believed the gospel, believed all the promises, and had no expectation of God doing anything supernaturally today at all. I think that's actually totally at odds with the God who reveals himself in this Genesis 12 through to uh, 50 narrative. That at the same time as God's making promises, he's doing supernatural things to authenticate the promises. So uh, look at um, Genesis 14, for example. Um, I've mentioned that already when uh, Melchizedek, this mysterious priest king figure who is only mentioned three times in the whole of the Bible. Once here, anyone tell me the other two times? Hebrews, Hebrews one other. Psalm 110. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, writes, writes David. So this is a, a supernatural, I would suggest, it's a supernatural, um, what theologians call a theophany. It's an appearance of Jesus, um, the pre-incarnate Jesus in physical form. Um, Genesis 17, God reveals himself as El Shaddai. Um, angelic visitors in chapter 18. Jacob's dream of Bethel, chapter 28. Jacob wrestling with God. That whole episode where I won't let you go till you bless me. Jacob walks away limping. He's not just had a vision of God. Somehow, I don't quite get this, don't totally understand it. He's physically wrestled with God and God leaves him lame and limp for the rest of his days um, as a result. So really what the author is saying is this whole covenant that God is making here, it is a God thing. There's a supernatural dimension. And what I'd love you to do now again in uh, tables is I've given you one, two, three, four, five different supernatural revelations of God in episodes one to ten of series one. Just on your tables, just think about episodes 11 to 20, i.e. the rest of the um, narrative from the death of Joseph through to the entry into Cana. And you can just jot down clear supernatural occurrences that authenticate 
the God of Israel as a covenant-keeping God. And also, you might want to, uh, let's have this side focus the Exodus narrative, and this side of the room, you focus series two, which is the, um, the, the moment from Joshua through to when Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel. And you come up with further examples of God authenticating himself as a supernatural God. Okay, um, very quickly then, uh, back two rows. It's always interesting to see who sits right at the back. What, what, what do you guys reckon? What have you got from the rest of the Pentateuch narrative that's clearly, evidently supernatural? Burning bush, keep going. Plagues, keep going. Parting of the Red Sea. Manna from heaven. Yeah, it's all driven by God supernaturally intervening. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, water from the rock. God consistently showing up to protect and preserve his people and demonstrate that he's a covenant-keeping God. What about into, into the land? Parting the Jordan River, Jericho, Samson's strength, Gideon and his dry fleeces, um, Saul prophesies size just before he's anointed. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, no, we've got the, we've got the drift. The reason I'm labouring it is I think it's really important when... Uh, we, we look at scripture and uh, we, you know, we do really get that God is a supernatural God. And we all tick that box, say, oh, yeah, of course he is. But actually our natural default position as 21st century Westerners is, is actually not that position. So, you know, um, in the, you go back to the 18th century... And uh, there was a moral philosophy that grew up that was called latitudinarianism that basically says that God is like a, a giant watchmaker, a clockmaker. He wound up the universe, yet he was there at the beginning, but actually he's not really that interested in it today. He's wound it up and he's just letting the clock run down. And my guess is many of us, and certainly this would have been my position, I didn't say, oh yeah, that's what I've signed up to consciously, but subconsciously, that was the view that I held, even as someone who loved the Bible, loved Jesus, had a high view of, of Scripture. But my whole worldview was shaped by a view of God that said God was remote and impersonal, and he's not. And you, you look at the, uh, uh, the Pentateuch narrative, and, and clearly that's not the case. Um, another common issue that people have with the, um, the Pentateuch is uh, in an apologetics-type debate, that when you look at the... Um, story of Genesis, and I've just listed some of the things here for you in the notes. The story of sin and God's rescue pulls no punches about the horror of sin. 
So you've got the fall in chapter 3, we'll come back to that later. By chapter 4 you've got murder, Cain kills Abel. Only a chapter after the fall, devastating consequences of sin. But from there things go to, from bad to worse and you've got incest, slavery, rape, child sacrifice, polygamy, prostitution. It's not a pretty picture. And... Sorry, can I just ask a question? Yeah. You know God talks to Cain and um, whether that's an audible voice uh, or or not, I don't think in the end matters that much. So some people would say it was a literal audible voice. Um, but yeah, the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, God's spoken to us in many ways and in various forms and then ultimately through, through Jesus. So whether it's a, an impression, an audible voice, I don't think matters that much. And I, I, I think clearly there are times in, in the Old Testament narrative where God does speak audibly. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think uh, that's necessarily always the case in in the Old Testament narrative. Yeah. Can you just help me with this um, this word sin? Yeah. When I don't like human behaviour, the worst of it, and even the sort of things that finds out in my I keep telling myself that this thing called sin is almost I've got to make it more than I think when I hear sin is crouched at the door. It always almost sounds like a person or it's like a virus, or it's something. But when you actually see it, you can see it working through people. It's horrible. Mm. You, you can't condemn it if you know that you've got it. It's almost like it feels like it's a kind of disease. But somehow, I don't ever feel in the Bible that I ever get the answer what this thing sin is. We just see the effects of it. Okay. That's a really, really profound question that you've, you've asked there. And I'm just going to shelve it for about an hour. Because, no, 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 it's a great question. We are going to come back to it when we look at uh, the Genesis 1, 2, 3, particularly um, after the, um, the coffee break. Because I think... Even in what you said, sins this, sins this, sins this, yet it's all of those things and a whole lot of other things besides. So we'll unpack it later. But great question. Um, But coming back to the um, incest, slavery, rape, child sacrifice, polygamy, prostitution, when you read those really sordid, horrible stories um, in the Genesis narrative, you quickly realise often the writer doesn't specifically condemn those activities. And so, and also bear in mind that often the so-called heroes are the main culprits. Think about Abraham, for example. Um, He is... um, 
less than perfect. He's not perhaps guilty of some of these worst excesses, but as soon as God's called Abraham in Genesis 12, he's going off down into Egypt and lying about his relationship with Sarah. You look at Jacob, uh, for example, and uh, he is a double-dealing, conniving, cheating, twisting um, con man. And so often the so-called heroes in Genesis are not particularly heroic in their behaviour. And you look at the story of Judah and Tamar, for example, um, uh, which you can read about in, in Genesis 28. Remember, Judah is the one who bears the seed. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's descended from Judah. And you read what Judah does in Genesis 38. He does not come up smelling with roses. And so it leaves some people who are not Christians say, well, the Bible endorses things like incest, slavery, rape, because many of the heroes are involved in this appalling behaviour. But just a few things to kick back on, because uh, you know, I think this is a real issue today when you're, you're chatting with people who are not Christians and they know a little bit about the biblical narrative. So they're very quick to point you to bits that you might find particularly challenging. But just four points that I would uh, make. First of all, the patriarchs are not heroes in the story. They are deeply, deeply flawed individuals. And whether you look at Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any of them, uh, they're not the heroes. It's God who's the hero in the story. Secondly, the narrator in often not telling the story in approval, um, he shows the horror of sin so it doesn't happen again. So when he tells the story, he's not saying, here's what happened, so go and do likewise. He's saying, look what happens to broken, flawed people who consistently mess up, even though God is a covenant-keeping God. And the disapproval is implicit rather than explicit. But the narrator still disapproves. Moses is not writing saying it's okay to have slaves. It's okay to, um, uh, to rape people. It's okay to commit incest. And again, I've used the example of Schindler's List there. Nowhere in that novel does the writer say, and so you shouldn't kill Jews. It's just obvious because you put the full horror of the story out there and you as the reader are left to make up your mind about the appalling consequences of sin. Does that make sense? So just because the writer doesn't specifically condemn it doesn't mean to say it's not a bad thing, it's not a, 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 a horrendous sin. Yes? Sometimes the whole sins to be destroyed, men, women, and children, and that's almost a harder one to get across. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and um, I think, um, and we haven't necessarily got time to unpack it all today, 
Um, but um, a couple of things to, to say there. Um, first of all, um, the, there are other um, people who probably some of them would teach on this course who, who know the, the period of conquest far better than me. But when it says that Israel slaughtered every uh, man, woman and child from a particular um, tribe, that may not mean literally every man, woman and child. If I say Liverpool murdered Manchester City the other week, it doesn't actually mean literally, does it? It's a device. And so there are some very good evangelical scholars. I'm not talking about people who want to rubbish the text and deny the authority of the Bible, but very good evangelical scholars who say, actually, that's a device for saying that actually there was a judgment brought upon a, um, a particular uh, nation. And, and actually, remember as well that God always shows mercy and grace to those who really do put their faith in the God of Israel. The, the classic example is, is Rahab the prostitute. So not only is she from a people group that God says, wipe them all out when you get into Jericho, from amongst that people group, she's the lowest of the low. And yet she receives grace and mercy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, also the narrator often highlights God's anger at sin. You look at Genesis chapter 19, particularly there, and God's commitment to destroy uh, sin. Um, and even where uh, God seems to uh, legitimize something that we would find horrific today like child sacrifice of course in the end God provides us uh, a substitute for Isaac and Isaac um, is uh, is not killed any questions or comments on any of that I've skated over a massive topic in about five minutes yeah yeah go on Where I don't know the, I think the historical thing is that you couldn't if we were making a company you could have been a moving part of what yeah. 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 But in this one it seems that it's only the Lord that walks through. Exactly the point I was making that it's all one way traffic, it's what God's promising. So is the covenant what for him to fulfil it rather than us? Yeah, it's it's one way. He's yeah, he's made the promise, and it's him who's going to deliver on his promises. Exactly that point that it's a it's a God established covenant and gave law so that we might live in right relationship. So lots of people wrongly. Um, interpret the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Well, you know, God gives the law so that actually um, we might, through keeping the law, um, obtain 
right relationship with God. No, that's not the, the way we should think at all. That was never God's plan. That God establishes his people in right relationship with him through um, his covenant and our response of faith to his covenant and then gives the law as, as a means of living in right relationship but not the means by which he establishes right relationship. Does that make sense? Good. We've talked a little bit about the tracking of the seed uh, already, but again, just five points relating to the tracking of the seed. The seed cannot be manufactured by human effort and ingenuity. Look at the story of Genesis 16, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And Paul in Galatians uses the story of Hagar and Ishmael to illustrate the gap between law and grace. Ishmael and Hagar are a picture, an allegory, says Paul, of law. It's only through God's grace, through uh, what he does through Isaac, if you like, that God fulfills his promises. The seed is the product of God's miraculous intervention. Look at Genesis chapter 21. Abraham is a hundred years old. Sarah, a decidedly postmenopausal, 90 years of age. So Abraham trying to twist and distort events cannot produce the seed. The seed is produced supernaturally. The seed is the product, um, the seed, sorry, the death of the seed is prefigured along with the whole idea of the substitution of the lamb. Remember the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And you get to the point in the story, uh, verse 13, Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So the whole idea of the lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice, and if you know the background, Mount Moriah is the place where today it's Temple Mount, is the place where God, through his covenant, uh, through Moses, where sacrifice was made, all foreshadows and prefigures uh, Calvary. Um, the seed is not carried out, is not carried by the more impressive looking elder brother. We've seen that with the whole Jacob and Esau thing. It's a story of grace not of merit. Malachi 1 uh, verse 2 and 3, God says, Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I have hated. Esau is the eldest son. You would have thought that God's promise was going to be fulfilled um, through Esau. And the biggest curveball of all is perhaps Judah. And I'll just talk about Judah and then we'll take some more questions. Judah, as we've said, is the fourth son 
of the unloved Leah. When you read that story and you read how Jacob loved um, Leah and uh, sorry loved Rachel and she's the pretty one she's the one who's caught his eye and uh, uh, she's the one who Jacob in the end ends up working 14 years for but she's the idolater she's not particularly heroic in her behavior do you remember later on in the story she's carrying idols as she's as they're they're fleeing and uh, her her father Laban catches up with them um, in the story by contrast Leah is unloved apparently uh, unattractive Judah is her fourth son you'd also reasonably assume that the central figure of Genesis 37 to 50 would be the bearer of the seed when you think about a huge portion of the Genesis narrative is all about Joseph. Joseph is the central character in the story from 37 to 50. And you think, why is he the central character if he's not the bearer of the seed? And it's because Joseph is the means of the preservation of the people of God in taking them down into Egypt so that they're saved in the time of famine that doesn't mean to say he's the carrier of the seed the seed Jacob focuses his blessing right at the end of his life on the two sons of his favored son Joseph so you read Genesis chapter 48 and uh, as he's dying Jacob is wanting to bless Manasseh and Ephraim Judah is not particularly heroic I've already mentioned the story of his relationship with Tamar and he ends up uh, having sex um, with Tamar and uh, who he assumes is just an ordinary prostitute and when it's revealed who she really is his defense is oh I just thought she was a prostitute as if oh well that's okay then But Judah is the key in the redemption story. Just look at uh, Judah's part. It's, it's Judah who rescues Joseph. Go back to Genesis 37. It's Judah that says, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him off not saying that was great either (laughs) it's Judah who rescues Benjamin which actually I take as a sign of real heartfelt repentance as to how they treated Joseph in the first uh, place I remember um, hearing Andrew Wilson talk about the story of Benjamin's cup and uh, he says whenever I read that story I weep it's a beautiful beautiful story of um, uh, reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance Um, so Judah's um, rescue of Benjamin is a key episode Um, 
in the story. Judah carries prophetic promises. Just look at Genesis chapter 49. I think this is arguably, along with Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The whole principle established there of justification by faith alone. I think this is arguably the other key verse in the whole of the book of Genesis. The scepter, scepter being... You know, uh, a symbol of royal authority. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. A very, very clear prophecy there from Jacob that it's from Judah that royal blood will come who Um, is going to be the fulfilment of the promises of God. And uh, the theme of the coming king is continued throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. We'll just finish with this. I'm I'm labouring this point because it's so important to understand Genesis as a book, this whole principle of the promised seed. Look at Genesis chapter 24, Verses 17 to 18. I see him, but not here. And now I perceive him, but far in a distant future. This is Balaam. This is, this is a pagan prophet prophesying. A star will arise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. It will crush the foreheads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of Sheth. Psalm 110. Sorry, Sorry, yeah, numbers, it's in the notes, yeah. The Lord says to my Lord, this is God saying to David's Messiah, so the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, says to my Lord, this is David speaking prophetically of the Messiah, sit in the place of honour at my right hand until I humbly make, until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. And then finally, uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. Stop weeping, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So you see the theme of the rule of the line of Judah right back through Genesis we'll see it actually goes back to Genesis chapter 3 we'll see that after the break 
the promise that the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head is there in Genesis chapter 3. For the seed from Abraham ultimately to Judah and ultimately fulfilled in Christ reflected through Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Psalm 110, Revelation chapter 5. Right, quick exercise just before we take a break. What does Genesis 12 to 50 teach us about these things? God, his nature and character, the gospel, God's people, God's mission. Rather than each of you thinking about all four, if you guys take the first one, the rest of the back of the room take the second one, this side at the back take the third and then you guys, from two rows, take mission. So it's God, gospel, people, mission. Okay? Off you go. Just five minutes, then we'll take a break.